Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. It's great to see you. In fact, can you turn to the person next to you and wish them a Merry Christmas? There it is. And if you're visiting for the first time, you're like, oh no, crowd participation, but I promise that's the end of it tonight. So no worries, right? Also a special shout out to those of you who happen to be joining us online. Well, sipping on some eggnog. Thank you for tuning in. And yes, I've heard you. Three of you reached out and said I'm much more interesting with eggnog. I'm not sure what to do with that. But anyway, uh, this Christmas Eve, we're actually in the final week of a series of talks called why Christmas? And it started with just one talk, but then I got really excited, and so it became a series. But the one tonight is kind of how the whole thing started. Why Christmas? And it's all about the different reasons that God sent Jesus to earth on that first Christmas. And, and uh, as we've noted all along, those reasons have everything to do with how much he loves you. Seriously. Uh, in, in fact, during this series, I've argued that even though you may have never thought about it, or ever felt this way, uh, the first Christmas benefited you in a number of ways. And tonight, we get to explore what just might be the most profound way of all. And uh, to get us going in that direction, I want to show you something from the accounts of Jesus' birth that's really easy to miss, especially um, if you've heard it your whole life uh, and kind of over-familiar with the story. But here's what I want to show you. Um, I want to argue that because of how he came... Jesus gets us. Because of the specifics of how he came, Jesus gets us. And I'm telling you, that understanding can be incredibly helpful, especially when you hit a challenging stretch of life that causes you to question God's love for you and his care for you. And some of you, this was your year or this was your season, and you're like, I can't believe we're talking about this right now. But, but you know, those, those nights when you just kind of reach the end of yourself and you want to shake your fist at the stars and scream, if you only knew. It's like in moments like that, it's so powerful to remember that because of how Jesus came, he knows what it's like. Whatever it is. In other words, he gets us. Now, now, let me explain why I feel so confident in saying that. And uh, to do that, I need to start with a bit of history. So if you like history, you're going to love the next few minutes. And if you don't, please just hang with me. It's super important. But uh, we'll start with this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born into a nation that had been waiting for God to send them a rescuer for hundreds and hundreds of of years. And, and at the time of Jesus' birth, things were very, very much complicated by the fact that Israel had been occupied by the Roman Empire, which was a global military superpower that ruled all the way from England to India. And practically, this meant that in the days leading up to that first Christmas in Israel, uh, Rome set the rules and Rome levied the taxes, which by many accounts were suffocating. In fact, historians estimate that the taxes reached as high as 90% in the region around the Sea of Galilee, the same region where an engaged couple named Joseph and Mary lived. And now, in order to maintain peace in the lands that it occupied, Roman soldiers regularly walked Israel's streets and even watched over the operations of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and they did so from a structure they had built called the Antonia Fortress or Fortress Antonia. This is a, a picture of a model that you find if you visit Israel, but you see the Antonia Fortress right here. And it was conveniently constructed to be just a little bit taller 
than the Jewish temple as a way to communicate to the people of Israel who is really in control. Like you go ahead and worship your God, but you remember who really has the final say in your land. All that to say, uh, in the days leading up to that first Christmas, life was complicated for the Jewish people. It was emotionally complicated and it was physically complicated. They were not free to be who God had called them to be. And so all over the land of Israel, people were longing for and crying out to God for him to send the promised rescuer who would make things right. And they called this promised rescuer the Messiah, that's the Hebrew word, or the Christ, that's the Greek word. And they believed that this very special individual was the one chosen to save and then lead the world. And in many ways, the hope of the Messiah was really Israel's only hope for a better future in the first century. And so consequently, every time a Jewish woman went into labor, people got excited because there was a chance that she might be the one who would deliver the promised one. Said a bit differently, in the first century in Israel, the pain of childbirth brought with it the hope that perhaps God had finally fulfilled his promise and sent the anointed one. Uh, Jewish scholars in that time scoured the writings of the Old Testament prophets for clues as to how and when God would send the Messiah. They were desperate to discover clues about who he would be and how he would come. And one of the most mysterious prophecies that they explored was recorded around 700 years before the time of Jesus by a prophet named Isaiah. And so speaking of a day somewhere in the future from his perspective, Isaiah wrote that people would say, and you've heard this, for to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then he goes on to say, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will rule and reign forever. So Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Jesus, promises that one day God would send a rescuer who would be a man, but who would also be way more than a man. He wrote that somehow this rescuer would be God in a human body. And as unbelievable as that sounded to the people of ancient Israel, the creator was going to visit the world that he created. He was going to breathe our air and walk our streets. He was going to experience life as one of us. And so now given that promise, and this makes sense if you think about it, the challenge in first century Israel among the Jewish people was to keep the bloodline clean. There was this persistent fear that Jewish girls would marry non-Jewish boys, and whenever that happened, they would forfeit their chance to give birth to the Messiah, because according to the prophecies, the Messiah was going to be born a Jew. Moreover, any questionable circumstances surrounding a pregnancy were seen as a threat to God's plan, and so men and women involved in such pregnancies were viewed as being working against God. Okay, so now with that bit of context, I want to take you into a man named Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. And it's an account that it's worth noting was first addressed to a Jewish audience. And so Matthew began his narrative by describing Jesus' birth this way. He wrote, 
This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And just notice right from the top, Matthew's like, Jesus is the one. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. He's the one that God promised to send. So here's how this went down. He said his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So far, so good. But before they came together, and if you're here and you don't know what that means, ask your parents on the way home. I'm not telling you. Mm -hmm. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, Matthew's original audience would have been absolutely stunned. But not for the reasons that you and I might be stunned. They would have thought, man, is Matthew really saying that the Messiah was born to an unwed couple and that Joseph wasn't even his biological father? I mean, that would have made no sense to them. That upended all of their expectations. So that made no sense. Joseph's response that Matthew recorded would have made sense. Matthew told us this. He said, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, meaning he was a righteous man. He was trying to live in line with God's design. So because Joseph was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace because that's what would have happened if Joseph had basically said, you know, she's pregnant and it's not my kid. He said he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And if you spend any time around the Christmas story, you know that engagement in first century Israel was as legally binding as marriage. And so breaking off an engagement required divorce. Uh, and culturally speaking, you know, for Joseph in the first century, that process was simple enough. The Jewish law required only that he basically give his fiance a written notice of his desire in the presence of some legal witnesses. So it would have been easy to divorce, but, but fortunately, after a visit from an angel... Joseph decided to remain engaged to Mary. And so just imagine this moment. Joseph realizes and recognizes that God has invited him into this unprecedented movement in history and that he was going to have a role in raising the Messiah. And I just imagine when he and Mary connected and reconnected after this understanding, it would have been unbelievable. Tears streaming down their face. And it was a moment of clarity and purpose. But let's be honest. Just because they both had bought into this plan does not mean things went smoothly for them. I mean, just imagine it with me. In the small town of Nazareth where they lived, the gossip would have traveled like wildfire. In fact, scholars suggest that around this time, there were probably only 150 people living in Nazareth. And so regardless of how Joseph handled the matter, he and Mary, well, they would have been viewed with suspicion and judgment and as the pregnancy went on, people watched Mary's belly grow. And I just can imagine them using her as an example to their children of what not to do. And so Jesus' pregnancy happens under some really unusual circumstances that made it very complicated for his parents. But I would argue that when you read the accounts of Jesus' life, there are more than a few indications that Jesus actually carried the stigma of these unusual circumstances surrounding his birth throughout his life. To show you one example, um, around 30 years after his birth, there's a Jesus follower named Mark who recorded that one day Jesus went to his hometown. He went back to Nazareth where he had been raised. And he was accompanied this time by his disciples, so his 12 guys. And he says, when the Sabbath came, that's Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, he, Jesus, began to teach in the synagogue. That's not so unusual, but look at this. And many who heard him were amazed because they knew him. He had been one of them, and then he had gone away, called disciples, and now he's back. And they said, where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom 
that's been given to him. And then what are these remarkable miracles he's performing? He seems to have the power of God in his hands. But then look at this. Isn't this the carpenter? Like we know him. We worked with him. Carpenter in the ancient world uh, probably means stonemason, but, but these were people that would have worked alongside of Jesus building a town that was under construction during his younger years. And so isn't it just, this is the carpenter. And look at this. Isn't this Mary's son? And they took offense at him. And uh, now here's why this moment, at least for me, is so noteworthy. noteworthy. In Jesus' day, children were always referred to as the son or daughter of their father. That was the cultural norm. They were always identified as being a part of the father's bloodline. And so the only reason that someone would be referred to as the son of their mother was if the identity of their father was in question. It was like another way to identify someone as illegitimate. And here's what's so fascinating. As I was digging into this line of thought, it wasn't just the people in Nazareth who felt this way. These rumors followed Jesus throughout his ministry and even beyond his life. In fact, I was preparing for today and I found an ancient source that reported that around 200 years after Jesus' birth, an early Christian leader named Origen wrote a letter to counter a rumor that had been circulating that Mary had been impregnated by a Roman soldier named Panthera who lived from 22 to 40 AD. And the fun thing about him, he had no head. That's so lame. That's like, that's like a bad pastor joke and dad joke, pastor joke. They took off the head. He had a head. Anyway, uh, but fun fact, they found Panthera's tombstone in Germany in 1859. Um, and just one more thing. I just think Pan Panthera would be a fantastic name for like a mullet-laden 80s metal band. Are you with me on this? Anyway, uh, what is clear is that the, or the questionable circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth followed him throughout his life. In ministry. And so now that said, I need to ask you a question. I mean, how might that one simple piece of information impact the way that we read the story of Christmas? I think it actually impacts it a lot because we, a lot of us, carry a very idealized and romanticized picture of that first Christmas. So let's just take that culture and let me take you to the most familiar text about Jesus' birth, the one written by a Jesus follower named Luke. So Luke began his account of Jesus' birth this way. He said, in those days, Caesar Augustus, that would be the first of the Roman emperors to demand to be worshipped as a god. So in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And you're like, why would he do that? taxes, right? He says, and everyone went to their own town to register, okay? He goes on. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He goes on. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married, so not yet married to him, and was expecting a child. In other words, Luke says, okay, uh, because of an inconveniently timed census, Joseph and a very pregnant Mary had to travel over 70 miles from their home in Nazareth to Bethlehem. And um, it, it's easy to miss, but because Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral home, he would have had relatives there. In fact, I would argue the whole town would have been related to him. There were probably only 300 people in Bethlehem at the time. Okay, so now with that, check out what Luke writes next. He said, when they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, 
And Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, which is like an animal food trough, because there was no guest room available for them. And, and this is interesting, because if you grew up in church like me, you probably remember the innkeeper from Christmas pageants who's with me. Were any of you the innkeeper as I was? Did any of you crush the role as I did? That's right. Turns out there was no innkeeper. Sorry, right? Uh, because the, the word translated guest room, or that was translated in, is the word kataluma, and it basically means the guest room of a home. There's a different Greek word for inn. So Luke tells us, you know, they wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And again, guest rooms are in homes, which raises a really interesting question. I mean, why would Joseph's family send him and his nine-month pregnant wife out back in a culture that values hospitality over almost anything else? I mean, anybody in that culture is going to give up their guest room to a nine-month pregnant woman. So why did they get sent out back? I mean, might it be because Mary is very with child and they're not at all certain about the father's identity? Or, or is it possible that they tried to explain and when they got to the part where it said she's pregnant with the Holy Spirit, the family kind of went, yeah, we don't buy that. <laughs> and it's like whatever they thought, as I imagine it, when they reached Joseph's family home and knocked on the front door, Joseph's relatives met him there and told him something along the lines of, you are not having that baby with that girl in this house. She's ruined your identity. She will not, or she's ruined your reputation, rather. She will not ruin ours. And, and to be fair, we can't know that that happened. But what we do know for sure is that shortly after arriving in Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary found themselves walking up a hill to a cave in Bethlehem where lambs who would one day be sacrificed in the Jewish temple were born and raised. And this is a picture from a cave near Bethlehem. This was not the cave. If you go there, they'll tell you it's the cave. You can take your picture, but it's not the cave. It could have been. I don't know. Um, but I'm telling you, that evening of that first Christmas, Mary and Joseph, somewhere in a cave like this, looking out at the stars, would have been confused. They would have been lonely. They would have been rejected. And they would have been absolutely exhausted from travel as they awaited the birth of the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ the savior of the world and the forever king of the human race. Friends, this is how God chose to come to earth. And it's stunning because he had other options. I mean, he's God. He had all the options. But, but I think he chose to come the way he came so that he could honestly say to people then and to people like you and me that he gets us that he knows what it's like. I mean, if you think about it, God could have sent his son to any family at any time and any place. Jesus could easily have been born into royalty, and that certainly would have been fitting. And had that been the case, he would have lived a life of wealth and privilege. But see, instead, the miracle of Christmas is that Jesus was born in a manger, in a cave, to unwed teenage parents under highly unusual circumstances. And see then as he lived his life, when you read those accounts, you start to see like Jesus experienced the worst 
that humanity has to offer. Suspicion and rejection and betrayal and pain and sickness and fatigue and disappointment. In other words, Jesus knew what it was like to be an outsider. He knew what it was like. In fact, I think that's why when you read those accounts of his life, you see that Jesus seemed to be drawn to other people who felt like outsiders, and they were drawn to him too. Other people who had experienced suspicion and rejection and betrayal and pain and sickness and fatigue and disappointment. I mean, that's why I'm convinced that one of the best answers to the question of why Christmas is so we could know that he gets us. That, that he understands, that he knows how it feels, whatever it is. And so whenever you're tempted to shake your fist at the stars and say to God, you don't know what it's like down here, may Christmas remind you that he does. And whenever you're tempted to say to God, if you only could walk a day in my shoes, may Christmas remind you that he has. Christmas is the story of a God who came near and took the worst of the human experience on himself. Not because he had to, but because he wanted us to know how much he loves us. And so whatever you're going through this Christmas, whatever, whatever brought you to this moment, please know that the God who created you and who sent Jesus to rescue you understands and he loves you and he gets you. He really is Emmanuel. God with us, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the Prince of Peace, and the light of the world.